My house sits in the middle of a row of terraced houses in Sydney's inner west. It's not a big, grand, echoing old house. It's a worker's cottage. Single storey, two bedroom. It has a long straight corridor that leads through to the lounge and the kitchen. And there's a bathroom at the back. It's cosy, but it's also haunted. And this is a story of that haunting. What has happened and is continuing to happen at my little terraced house. Over the next few episodes, I will fill you in on life behind the wooden front door of my spooky house. Spooky house. Spooky house. dogs became husband and cat. There was plenty to distract me through the months that followed and the lack of new impressions of supernatural activity made the previous paranormal events fade away. I took an active role and interest in bringing my house back from the slightly neglected faded place it had become over the years. New drainage went in as did a new boiler. We carefully applied a skin of fresh paint, undertook window repairs, and sat back self-satisfied as the old house emerged from its torpor. It was all going well until I needed to do a termite inspection, or at least with my limited knowledge, try and see what issues might be lurking under the floor. The trapdoor into the subfloor space lies in the corner of the lounge. Four floorboards cut from the remaining floor, glued together and dropped into place over the void, created tight entry into the cavity below. By dropping one's feet into the hole, one could sit between two worlds. With legs on the earthy, damp floor two feet under and head and shoulders back into normal life, I took a breath and started sliding my feet and legs along the dirt, putting myself into a prone position under the floor. A sense of being buried, I thought. I took a deep breath, switched on my torch and rolled onto my stomach. My first view of the space beyond was of Sydney's finest brown dirt from which brick piers rose to meet the beams above. To my left, the lounge wall, and around the corner through a squeeze into the hallway. To my right, the floor rose to meet the kitchen wall, making that space out of bounds for exploration. I crept across nonetheless, and in the tightening space, I stared through the hole where brick had become loose. I carefully aimed my torch and shone it into the subfloor space under the kitchen. Dirt and brick piers met my gaze, as well as a water pipe 
green with age, suspended through the air, going from one end of the kitchen to the other like a creeper. I sighed. That looked as body as the other DIY I had uncovered elsewhere on the property. Something to do later, I thought. I used my elbows to turn me around and headed back military style to the space under the two stairs that dropped from the lounge into the hall. It was a tight squeeze, but I did it. And then I was in the hall where two feet of space became three and I felt less hemmed in. I'd better get some shots, I thought, reaching into my jacket for my phone. The flash of the phone camera lit up the old damage, minor damage and decay that had been arrested many years before. There was old paint that was peeling from above, flaking into the void below. A gap to my left and darkness beyond indicated that there was a doorway into the second bedroom, I thought as I soldiered on, on my elbows and knees, until I reached the front door and the first bedroom. Curiosity satisfied, I manoeuvred myself back around, this time facing towards the back of the house, and then I took a final snap. I was already aware of a change in atmosphere, a chill that could not be explained by the light breeze that came through the grill at the front of the hall or the cool earth below. But when I looked at the shot I had just taken, this time taking it without a flash, my fears were confirmed. Under the floor space next to the back bedroom door was a ball, well not a ball, more a wisp, a wisp of white. My body went numb, my head exploded. What is it? Get out, get out. But the only way out was via that creepy place, right through the place where I'd just seen the mist. Right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left. My elbows pulled me along the space under the corridor, through the squeeze, round the bend, heaving dusty and shaking into the light. My husband looked shocked. Whether it was at my face or my dusty appearance, I didn't know. But when he saw the photo, he was as shocked as me. And I've not been down that hole since. On my research into this topic, I've come across a surprising amount of societies and peer-reviewed journals focusing on parapsychology and psychic phenomena. There's a Journal of Parapsychology in America, which has had eight decades of psychic research and was founded in 1937. There's also the Australian Journal of Parapsychology, which has had a number of published papers, including a paper entitled Exploring Obstensible Poltergeist Activity versus Haunting Phenomena via Reassessment of Spontaneous Case Data. Gritty stuff. There's also an interesting journal article called Ghostly Episodes by Hill et al, which was reported in 2019 and was an integrated review of nearly 20 years of social cultural research on popular trends in ghosts, haunted houses and poltergeists. 
there's also been a longitudinal study published in the form of a paper in this journal featuring a Sydney pub that underwent many paranormal haunting episodes. Anyway, back to my mist. I had a longitudinal review published by the Association of Scientific Study of Anomalous Phenomena, ASAP. They're a paranormal education and research charity based in the UK and have written a piece on analysing ghost photos. This informal study that they've undertaken involved thousands of photos and was conducted over several years. While the study identified that many of the submitted photos are in fact artefacts, just a difference in the way the camera perceives light versus the human eye, a number of photos have no logical explanation behind what is shown. A number of photos can be explained through the camera strap getting in the way, the flash causing glare and out of focus shots. I looked up mist. One explanation for mist is that cigarette smoke or breath can be caught in the air, giving the impression of a spectral mist. But it was not cold enough under that house for my breath to project itself three feet along the floor, and I do not smoke. Certainly not under the house. The article also said that some people think that mist is ectoplasm. I hadn't heard that word in years, since I was a teenager tuning into Arthur C. Clarke programmes on the TV in the 80s where he showed black and white pictures of mediums taken back in the late 19th and early 20th century with white strands emanating from their nostrils and their mouths as they conducted a seance. You don't really see that anymore. I'm guessing ectoplasm is not a good look. And anyway, it's probably way out of fashion now. I also looked at the Society for Psychical Research. In 2016, they published a very long piece on the recordings of apparitions and the surveys that have been conducted over the years. They term an apparition to be a person who is seen or felt to be present, but is not present at the time. That can involve people, animals, objects. I've come across cases of haunted chairs. There's the case of Annabelle, the haunted doll. There's also buildings long since demolished, or even scenes such as battles. Occasionally, the protagonist doesn't even need to be dead to appear as an apparition. There are countless tales of people in a time of need appearing to someone else thousands of kilometres away. And Roger Clark, in his interesting book, The Natural History of Ghosts, 500 Years of Hunting for Proof, reveals a story of a man who, having left his house and beloved garden behind, still daydreamed about his garden. And when he met the people that bought the house off him, he became aware that the daughter was staring at him strangely and almost looked in shock. It turned out she'd actually seen him in the garden and thought he'd been a ghost. Ghost sightings have always been with us. Even in the first century, there was recorded evidence from Pliny the Younger who recorded tales of people seeing apparitions that foretold of doom and asked for help. Anyway, going back to this study, it categorises spirits in a number of different ways. The overarching term is a ghost, but within that you have hauntings, which is somebody basically going through a robotic recreation, a repeating pattern of event that has long since happened. Sometimes ghosts can be a bit more interactive. They can be accompanied by physical disturbances such as footsteps or voices. And there's even the most active ghosts, which are poltergeists, which can end up throwing things around a room. That term was first coined in Germany in the 1930s. In terms of general hauntings, people going through repeated patterns of behaviour. Ernest Bizzano in Italy analysed 374 cases of hauntings. 
and his study found that over 80% of those had involved a death at the particular premises where the haunting was happening. First survey of apparitions was formally conducted in 1886 and was a two-volume survey of apparitions, including over 700 anecdotal reports of sightings. Analysis was undertaken on the information provided. The only real takeout from it was that the cause of some of the sightings could be a mental image projected by telepathy from the person who saw it. In 1948, a further survey was undertaken, involving 17,000 people. The proportion of people that said they'd seen an apparition went up from 10% in the very first survey to 14% in this survey, and 30 of those were seen as death coincidental crises, apparitions whereby somebody at point of death or trauma can appear to somebody else thousands of kilometres away. The incidence of those in the sample was significantly over what might be achieved by chance alone. Interestingly, in that study, most apparitions were said to be realistic human forms rather than mist and other forms, and female reported sightings significantly outnumbered those reported by males. In 1990, a further study was undertaken with 14,000 people, and this time the proportion of people who said that they had seen an apparition had dropped to 11%. Alongside survey research and anecdotal evidence, people have undertaken a number of scientific studies to see if the human brain can be stimulated in some way to project an apparition. In the Phantasms of Living report in 1881, researchers have tried various things like hypnosis and other subtle attunements to try and transmit human forms, with some degree of success apparently. As I mentioned at the end of episode 1, temperature change and electrical interference are both prevalent in hauntings. And to this end, Huron and Lang invented the spider in around the 1950s, which is a piece of equipment that collects infrared, ultrasound, electrical activity and temperature change in a single machine, such that the environment at a single location at a single time can be monitored and this information printed out. While equipment has evolved a bit since then, it still follows the same basic premise. Although machines that measure electrical activity and are known as EMF meters now, have been added to with voice recorders and cameras, particularly thermal imaging. There's also an alarming experiment called the Psychomantum. This was conducted a number of times in the early 20th century. A room was set up with black material around the walls, a chair sat in the room in front of a mirror, and there was a dim lamp also present. Before the subject went into the room, they were asked by the researcher to detail the person they wanted to contact from the other side and sat in the chair and looked into the mirror. 22% of the subjects said that they had had a reunion experience with the person that they wanted to see. They either spoke to them through the mirror or in some cases the apparition stepped through the mirror and walked around the room for a chat. Anyway, interesting stuff. Please tune in to my podcast next time where we have a party and yes, there is an unexpected guest. Sleep well, people.